0: Welcome to Sound and Vision,
1: conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Kerry Smith is a painter born in Puerto Rico and who lives and works in Connecticut. He received his BFA from Syracuse University in 1977, and over the past 30 years, he's had over 20 solo shows and has been included in countless group shows. He's had solo shows at Feature Inc., Derek Eller, Roger Ramsey, the Aldrich Museum, and he currently has a show up at Friedrichs and Freiser Gallery in New York City. On a quick count of his bio, he's been included in over 70 group shows in many well-respected galleries and museums. His work has been reviewed in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Art Critical, the Chicago Tribune, Art in America, and many, many more. He's received an NEA Fellowship Paula krasner grant, and a Gottlieb Foundation grant. His work is included in many collections, including the Whitney Museum, the Brooklyn Museum, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, the Rose Art Museum, the Wadsworth, the Yale University Art Gallery, and many more. We met up at his solo show in Friedrichs and Fraser, and we spoke about everything from watercolor to Bob Dylan, to the power of color and electronica. Here's our conversation. I just did um, yesterday. Yeah. I was in North Carolina doing a visiting uh, thing and yeah. I did virtual reality. Oh wow. Where you can it's the Google program called um, Tilt Brush where okay. you can you put on the goggles and oh, you, wow. you paint all around you. It's oh. crazy.
0: Well, I'm not a techno guy. I don't even have a smartphone, but <clears throat> there was a guy in the building where I have my studio, which is up in central Connecticut in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. It's in a little town on a river. And a guy who makes um, models of artists' studios moved in for a while, and he has now left. He went down to Florida. His name is Joe Fake. Yeah. And he wears he he gets into all different kinds of technology, and I think he he did some stuff with goggles of his studio, so you could like look around mm-hmm. and see three dimensionally. Um, it's it's an interesting thing, technology and how it. Relates to making stuff, for example, and I mean, I use Photoshop um, in in the making of my work. I, I wonder if you might as well, but um, I think you got to start with your with your intuition and your heart personally, and um, that's really most of what you need. Your brain, I mean, um, and that. Uh, I will say that, that Photoshop has made things easier for me because I can make a painting and want to make a variation on it and just move the colors around by eye-dropping it and pouring it here and there. And you can quickly, as you know, um, look and see how things look in different arrangements in minutes. Yeah. It's very useful.
1: That's how I got into using technology with my work is because yeah. I... You know, I'd have a big background sky color, oh, and yeah. I didn't know what color I wanted to paint it. Yeah. And before I had a Photoshop, yeah. I would just paint it, and it didn't work, and then I would paint it. Because, yeah. you know, you can mm. imagine, but totally. until you do it, you don't know what it's going to look like.
0: And, you know, it's funny because it seems to me that often when you put something down, then you can see where you need to move. Yeah. Like, you need to move that color in a, in a direction, But you're throwing darts here, and it's hard to hit that bullseye. And if you're really finicky, you want it as close to what you think is right. Mm -hmm. Um, I was looking on your website last night, and there was this yellow plane. Um, You see part of it in a blue sky, Mm -hmm. all right, beyond a building. Uh, There may be some trails behind it. And I was looking at that yellow with that blue and um, liking the feeling of it, which is you know, I mean, it, it conveys a sense of light, but and, and believable light. Um, and that happens, you know, a lot in your work where you see these color combinations that are extremely sensitive, which is what I'm trying to do too. I'm, I'm uh, turning up the saturation um, pretty loud, pretty hard. Um,
1: <clears throat> it enabled me, yeah. I mean, to do subtle things like that too. Right. To slightly shift. Right. colors and without having to work on it over and over and paint costs money and time you know so it, right. just, it helped out in that process.
0: Mainly time right? Yeah. Definitely. The other thing though is is that when you really know the Photoshop image on your computer let's say and you, and you get the color that looks good to you on the computer it's you develop an ability to understand what that color is made of even mm-hmm. though it's not paint. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's That's light. helpful.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's like a different it's a different... Well, in the same way that when you work in collage or drawing or watercolor or something like that, right. and you make a painting based off that image, yeah. you know there's... You can kind of bridge the gap. You can. You can understand the difference between the materials, you know.
0: Particularly if you've been um, involved in that transition, it makes sense to you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you're, it's funny, because as I'm talking to you, yeah. these are dancing like behind <laughs> you. You know the vibration yeah. that happens when you... Remember this, the magic eyes when you don't focus on it, and yeah. then like they start moving? Oh, that's like, funny, yeah. These are doing that in my peripheral.
0: <laughs> well, you know, the, the tonality um, of these paintings, as you can see, is kind of close, mm-hmm. the red and the blue, and that's something I've avoided um, most of my serious art making life when I started being aware of it because I wanted visual clarity but in teaching um, for years and years and years and giving assignments and watching the results it's a really great laboratory to understand how you feel it is isn't it
1: that's what you get out of it that no one talks about really
0: oh boy it's big stuff man I mean in fact I had this young guy who was maybe his first art class he wasn't an art major clumsy art maker, but dedicated, hardworking, and um, humble. His images were humble, and I liked them a lot. And I told the class that I wanted them to make this landscape drawing, various landscape drawings, using graphite, and to leave a border around the drawing. And I meant in, in the middle of the paper, I was thinking to myself, but this guy filled the paper and left this thin border um, around his drawing, which is no big new thing or anything, but um, I looked at that and I was so taken by that thin border that that's why I started putting borders borders. on my work. (laughs) Funny, huh? Yeah, right. And it has absolutely nothing to do with any major um, conceptual notion, although um, I am interested in objects, like uh, we used to, years ago, collect American painted boxes and game boards, and oftentimes there's a border Um, Which makes them object like as opposed to a spatial experience. And also, the the game boards have this symmetricality about them. And when I allowed myself to start making symmetrical esque paintings, it was interesting how much more interested I became in them. They felt fresher somehow. It's like a pose, you know, a geometric pose, let's call it. has been done so brilliantly by others, like Mondrian, for example, the way he orchestrates his um, compositions. Uh, John McLaughlin, although there's a symmetricality to a lot of his stuff too, but that, um, it took something to allow myself to let go of that kind of posed quality. And um, this room is actually, in this show, um, a particularly um, clear rendition of thinking about doing that yeah. here. Because they don't look like paintings, sort of. Um.
1: <clears throat> there's so many re- There's so many things that fly through my mind, too, yeah. like references of whether it's folded paper or games right. or Tron. Good, <laughs> good. <laughs> you know, all those. Yeah. That's one of the beauties of, of paring down language or, or yeah. is that it opens it up to a lot more discussion with other images or other.
0: Experiences in your life, you know. Well, that's interesting. You know, uh, I, Alexander Ross posted on Facebook the other day this um, <clears throat> half and half carton mm-hmm. that he had opened, and he had carefully opened it and leaned it against a wall on some wooden support, and the thing was absolutely beautiful. It looked like a Richard Rizak sculpture. I don't know if you know Richard Rizak, he's a sculptor from Chicago, um, showed it feature in his quite an amazing guy Um, and there was this imagery in that, you know, this kind of imagery Uh, and actually when I was looking at your website I looked at this um, first video or the second video having to do with the dangers of beauty oh yeah. yeah and you were showing various sort of central geometric forms seems to me and one of them was a square divided Like that. It was black and white, and it sort of fell apart as the video progressed, Uh, but you still saw those. And I thought to myself, see, this is once again proving that um, in terms of geometry, when you get down to the sort of center of it, there isn't that much. um, There's an infinite amount, and there isn't that much at the same time. And so a lot of really good artists arrive at a geometric. Quality that is similar. Um, And I guess part of it is can you find territory that feels like you, that is you, um, and that doesn't bring to mind immediately other artists? Um, And there's a lot of things going on, like the the surface of the paintings is part of that. Um, And that, you know, this. This tonality thing that you said that these paintings in this room were in the blue and red room, um, I thought to myself, after my last show here, where I used a lot of white, I made these, what I call straight line paintings that had white backgrounds and they had, let's say, red thick lines zigzagging around, and then maybe thinner blue lines that were abutting the red lines making them seem like they were behind the red, but they, they didn't, I didn't think about them being behind personally. But anyway, those were all white grounds, and then there were these oval paintings that inside all the ovals was white, and there were other paintings that were, there were large, a lot of white, and I thought, I'm going to see if I can make paintings that are, um, more emotionally <clears throat> laden, and, um, one of the ways I thought I might be able to do that is to remove the white. That was a big part of what I did in yeah. this show.
1: Yeah, there isn't... It's, And it, the white on the edge of the canvas becomes yeah. really
0: important. Totally, and the thickness of the stretcher. Right. You know, like, um, I'm really picky about the thickness of stretchers. You know, like, I don't like a too thick a stretcher myself. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, I was visiting an artist who makes very slow paintings of things like a log or an armpit and she had been working on this painting for months and it was small like 18 inches or 20 inches wide and it was on a thick stretcher and it looked good and I thought to myself maybe it's because of all this time and the way that she's painting and what she's painting it it works for me um, and maybe on a thinner stretcher it wouldn't have looked as good but but typically with my work I, I like a thinner stretcher Yeah.
1: And the line work that's happening around the border or the red, which does like a figure ground reversal of course, but that become it really plays with that edge on the side and then you know, it's like those little moments that a lot of times people ignore or, you know, the painting's so busy that you're not it's not engaged with the side, you know. But I think it's something everyone needs to think. I think when I teach it drives some of the students crazy when I'm like, Well, why are you painting the sides of your canvas like neon pink? Right. And they're like, I don't know, it
0: looks yeah. cool. You know? yeah. Well, yeah, painting the sides of canvas is something that a lot of people do, it seems to me, and I actually generally question the decision, personally. I, I don't know, there's something about the instantaneity of the face of the painting facing you, now, I don't have a problem personally with, with drips and stuff like that happens that goes around. I love that. Yeah.
1: Because yeah. then you feel like it's a painting. Right.
0: Like it's... You see the process. Yeah. Um, we have a few Andrew Masullo paintings. And um, he, back in the earlier days, um, let's say, I'm thinking maybe in the 80s, um, would paint the imagery around the edge of his paintings carefully, all right? Now, in his case, it's again because of the care. He was painting these paintings very, very carefully with must have been a very fine brush. Um, even though you don't see that stuff unless you're looking from an angle at the paintings, um, that works for me. It's lost when you look face on. But um, <clears throat> yeah, that's an interesting discussion. I guess it's a case by case basis with me feeling that most of the time if you paint the image around the edge, it's uh, it looks kind of um, amateurish. Yeah,
1: or know? it turns it into. You know how nowadays you can print out images on canvas yeah. and have it stretched for you. Oh right, like after. you could send a photo of you and someone else and get it printed on canvas and stretched. Yeah, but it always wraps around because right. it's not right up to the edge. Yeah, it's not
0: the exact size.
1: So now it kind of references that. The first piece that I saw that really engaged me in the side of a painting was mm. that Joe Bear. I forget the title of it, but the low one where uh-huh. it wraps around. Oh you not know that amazing painting where it's you know it it kind of rides up. She yeah. hung it really low in the wall, <laughs> very thick stretcher, <laughs> and the abstract lines kind of wrap up around the side of the painting. Um, so it's super deliberate. Yeah, you know, it's kind of the the content of the work. Well,
0: yeah, yeah. That way with Andrew too, it's so deliberate that, um, and you know, I guess it's. I don't know. I just often question that decision with somebody, when you say a student, you ask the student, why are you painting that pink? Yeah. And the student might say, well, I don't know, it looks cool. I guess that is enough of a reason, because you never know what people are going to discover. In yeah. fact, one of the other things I think you get from teaching is occasionally having a student that blows your mind yeah. when you thought they were off track. Right. All right, So now that is very exciting. Like I had this one student who He's kind of an angry person, and he injured himself somehow, came to class with a crutch. And I asked him, what happened to your ankle? And he said, I injured it doing a plie in ballet class. Now, he was just being <laughs> annoying, right, right. right? And then he was making these watercolors with extremely saturated paint. <clears throat> And what I was teaching was to experience the range of saturation from very saturated and all down to hardly any. Uh, This was introduction to watercolor. And so I talked with him about maybe try expanding your range of saturation, because what they were doing was they were making these landscapes that were made from drawings that they made from reality, not making anything up, and then using any colors they wanted. So they were kind of these abstractions that were based in realistic drawing, made from from looking at life. And he made two of these things. And I took photographs of them and took them home to my computer and looked at them. And I thought to myself, this guy's like a better artist than I am. Like, there's no possible way I could have made these, and yeah. they're exquisite. <laughs> so I told him, I said, "Look, man, what you did was phenomenal. I couldn't have done it, yeah. right?" Um, and it changed. It changed my thinking about my art. art mm-hmm. That, and I like it when that happens. When you're surprised, right? Like that.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. That when you're teaching, you get put in situations where that can. It's it's a great feeling when that, that happens. Yeah. Is it just a certain energy you get from that, too, you know, I think which is important to maintain that energy. How did you, so we're talking already about this work, but where did, you know, a lot of people think palette Mm. and maybe sensibilities come from, you know, when you're young or growing up. Right. So what was your childhood like?
0: Well, that's a possibility. I don't know that for a fact, but I was born in Puerto Rico and grew up in the Virgin Islands. And the light is very bright, and there's a lot of bright colors, even though I don't remember them particularly. Yeah. I, we left when I was five years old. Yeah. So it's possible. You know, they talk about Gauguin going to a tropical area and it affecting his color, you know. Um I don't know if that's the case. I will say that when I was young, I saw Picasso paintings, and I was immediately attracted to um, just the richness and the strength of um, his color. How young are we talking? I'm thinking probably like twelve. Yeah, you know, um, I even remember in the art room at the well, junior high and high school. Um, was the high school art room was kind of open to me all the time. And I would occasionally skip class if I was into something. Um, but I made this still life that was very influenced by Picasso that looked like a Picasso still life. wasn't that good. But like... Um, uh, and I'm thinking now to college where I had this design class <clears throat> and this guy said to the class, I want you to go home and just use squares and circles and make uh, on illustration board a little painting using acrylic paint um, that is just using squares and circles <clears throat> in a flat manner. <clears throat> and that was unbelievably easy for me. Like, and when I put mine on the wall with the other students' work, um, I wasn't expecting this, but it really stood out because I, it just came so naturally to me. You know, and and I was reading somewhere recently someone saying you know why maybe it was women giving advice to other young women artists about what to think about, but I think one of the artists said why bother like doing things that are hard for you, why not go where it comes naturally, all right, and um, and then. Something else happened where after college, um, I was thinking about this student that I had observed in various classes. Um, he was a loner. He sat in the corner and he worked on his own work. And I knew he was totally for real. Like he he didn't care what the teacher thought. He and I was impressed, very impressed. So, um, and I was pretty naive about what art could be in college. Um, I didn't go into college thinking I'm going to be a successful artist. I didn't think that way. I just wanted to be part of the art world, whatever that meant. I had commercial art teachers who were saying you should go into commercial art. Um, you were an art major? I was, yeah. And where, I was an art major at Syracuse. This? At Syracuse? Yeah. Which I partied too much. I lived with a bunch of guys who that's kind of all they did. And mm-hmm. I think if I were, I mean, maybe it's that time of life maybe it's immaturity, but, um, I wasted a lot of time, but I did make a lot of stuff. And I think that's what college did for me was got me into the habit of making stuff. Even if it wasn't something I would like show in a show, right? It's just making, 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 but, um, I was going to tell you something. Oh, after college, oh, geez, I had this very interesting thing happen. Um, they helped me set up some appointments with commercial art enterprises in New York City. Mm-hmm. All right, like advertising agencies, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I had this portfolio. A lot of the paintings were on paper, and they were realistic still lives I mean, um, landscapes in Italy and in London, because mm-hmm. um, I had studied over there for one semester in each of those places, and fell in love with the uh, British watercolorists. And So I brought these watercolors and some drawings to the very first advertising agency I went to, and the guy said, we want to hire you, all right? We want you to be like a guy who does everything here, and we're we're not going to give you a particular job, but you're going to work here. That's pretty amazing. I was unbelievably excited. This is like 1977, all right? Right. Call my parents, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. You know, like I've made it. I got a job. (laughs) (laughs) Got a job. First one, right? Yeah, I think it was. It was the first day. If it wasn't the first, it was the second. But they took me to a nice lunch, and then the guy put me in a cab to go to his photographer, which Mm -hmm. was blocks and blocks away. And the photographer, who was this like super cool guy, all right. He had long hair, and he was smooth, relaxed, Mm -hmm. all right. And he says to me, "So why are you involved with them?" Okay, he's looking <laughs> at the, the paintings, and I said, "Well, I'm you know I'm coming to New York to be part of the art world and right. be an artist." Blah blah blah. And he goes, "Well, you you should drive a cab, and tell them no. <laughs> <laughs> this is the guy who and make art." That's what he said to me. And Man, I, and all I on the first day, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a lot to take in. It was because I was first of all I was incredibly excited, yeah. and then he was making me question. So I went back to where we were living, which was up in central Connecticut, the same area where we still live now. And I thought about it and thought about it. And I went to this local art gallery to see if I could get a job there. And the guy hired me at the place. And I told, I told them, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not coming to New York. So I worked in this art gallery. And while I was working in that art gallery, at night, I would go home and make these watercolors that were influenced by that guy who sat in the corner back at college. They didn't look like his work, but I was drawing something from his approach, which was different than anything I had ever done. And they were color field watercolors with a lot of edge color, like different stuff happening on the edges. And I learned so much about color over the next few years of doing these at night. I stayed up really late doing them often. and. I actually now believe that watercolor is a very good way to get inside color because being a stain, you see it differently than opaque paint so that you get inside the color and know the personality in a way that's very, I think oil paint, people say watercolor is hard, I think oil paint's way harder Mm -hmm. to get color right and so use any advantage you can. I think watercolor should be a prerequisite for painting. Yeah, because
1: you're seeing color moving in real time too. You're seeing that. Instead of mixing it on the palette, yeah. it's happening on the page with with transparency, so that totally changes.
0: I think the transparency is the big thing because um, it's like whispering the secrets of, of personality of color in your ear where when you're looking at opaque paint, it's a very direct conversation that's hard to understand. It's like in a foreign language. And, and you know, watercolor gives you free space. If you put a, a wash down of a transparent color, you instantly have believable space. Right. Um, whereas to make space with opaque paint, um, you have to understand the relationships of the colors. And it's a mystery that you have to figure out. People can tell you stuff, in my opinion, but, but in order to figure out your own Way of creating what you're doing, it has to come from doing it and experience. Yeah,
1: you learn through the process. You can't just look at 14 Turner books and just take it in. (laughs) Yeah, you have to kind of push paint around to get it. You
0: know, I I remember seeing a uh, Jasper Johns painting um, at maybe a high school trip or something. Or no, it was later than that. Um, A trip into New York, and I came back to my studio and wanted to make a red and white. It was a flag painting, something to do with red and white. So I, in the back of my mind, I thought, like, well, how did he do it? So I, I created this red and white painting, and the colors looked terrible to me. And it wasn't until later that I realized that he lightened the colors just to this place where they were on the verge of becoming too light. And I came to believe that if you look at color from a distance, it darkens, you know, like um, it darkens and dulls. So these artists whose work looks good from across the room are um, painting the peripheral reality that makes it look like what they're after from across the room. This is very interesting to me because, um,
1: well, when you were doing those little watercolors yeah. and went into that phase, yeah. Were you looking at certain artists or were you kind of just doing your own thing?
0: Actually, I was not. Yeah. And um, very rarely do I look at another artist and like take from them wow. in my own way. Um, with my color, like when I started showing my work in New York City, <clears throat> um, I was making these paintings that were using Dorland's wax medium. Mm-hmm. I was using zinc yellow straight out of the tube made by Winsor & Newton. Um, And that's because I was attracted to the early Americana and the colors in the milk paint and the the game boards. There was a lot of this dirty yellow um, that I was so attracted to. And a lot of that was the patina, but um, the zinc yellow seemed to have a property related to that, but then I started to feel that actually it wasn't really related to that as I progressed within that group of work. But That group of work I made for several years, and I used the same colors. There were six of them, black and white, and four colors. And um, remind me of the question again, because you you were- I was just talking
1: about what you were looking at. Yeah. Or if that was having an influence on you.
0: So I remember this experience where one of the dealers I worked with, I think it was Morgan Spangle, had a Emmy Knoebel book, Mm -hmm. all right, and it was- um, uh, a show of paintings in Japan called Grace Kelly Paintings. <clears throat> and I saw that he used this flesh color um, and he used these light colors that I had not I had not used myself. I had used them, colors like them in my watercolors, but because I didn't know what I was doing, and it was watercolor, I was getting a lot of, like I said, sort of free success. Whereas I didn't really know how to create success it was coming to me much more easily and actually those watercolors are what I would call technically slick um, and they don't particularly interest me at this point Um, because that's another thing about technical slickness I want to avoid that very much in fact I don't like any kinds of technical tricks so anyway I saw the Emmy Knoebel images in this book and I was like stopped in my tracks, all right? Like I realized the guy was crushing me with color, and that I didn't know what I was doing. And that made me start to question where I would take my color. And I shortly thereafter um, started making wide-ranging color paintings that were all the same image. So all my paintings up to that point had been six colors with varying Compositions, and now is making a wider range of colors that were all the same image. It's probably related to the the Grace Kelly paintings, which were all sort of the same.
1: Were they all abstract, or were they represent? Yeah, they
0: were. They were like, they were um, one big plank of color with four bars of color around the outside. Um, and I, I think he must still have an effect on me, although I don't think about him that much. Um, and I was more interested in that work than, than a lot of the, the constructions that he makes now. Although I have great respect. And any time an artist can blow my mind, mm-hmm. they, it's going to be tough for them to lose some place of importance, right. you know. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> uh, so you know, like people make a connection with my work with Myron Stout, all right. Um, because I, I'm making different kinds of paintings. I'm making the game board-like paintings, let's call them, even though I'm not thinking game board when I'm making these. I'm, they could be called that, let's say. Um, and then I make these shape drawings and shape paintings. And part of that reason I do that is because I want um, contradictions, visual contradictions. It's like you know the painting you have of a distant house with a splash in front of it. Okay that provides the, the range of visual experience that, I don't know, charges it up. Um, and because I make, I pare things down to such a degree, I've decided I would um, do them in separate paintings and hang them together. So I actually see the rooms as like a stew that should be eaten all together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and they
1: work off of each other, yeah. you know. Yeah, I was thinking about that, you know, in this show, in yeah. the front space... Each painting feels like a much different character, right. you know, and they're all having this bigger conversation. Back here in this room, it's kind of like siblings. Precisely, <laughs> you know, and, and
0: that's a contradiction in itself. It's like I mean, I like things that feel as though they're contrasting one another. And one of the things that I, you know, like you look at um, Van Gogh's colors, yeah. and he uses complementary notions constantly to create energy, right? And that 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 the the thing I would say to my students is, if you take a man and a woman, you can create real life right. because they're, they have the ability to create real life. Um, and <clears throat> I think that when you're making art, how do you make something that people want to stop and look at for a while? And so like if it feels real, then they'll want to look at it. Yeah. You know, Even if it's something they wouldn't think they would want to look at. Um, yeah. So I think some abstract art is more real than some real, realistic
1: yeah, art. Yeah, definitely. You know? And more charged. Yeah, I it know. can be. I um, mean, if you could zoom in on a Van Gogh, yeah. and it would be just as interesting yeah. without the self-portrait. Oh, this know. is so true. And the energy in those are, are crazy. Oh,
0: no. Well, you, you are saying exactly the same thing that I've said a lot, which is if you take any six-inch square... All right, from a really good Edward Hopper painting, turn it upside down and blow it up to a six foot painting, it would be a knockout. Yeah. Because um, he understands what goes next to what to create that real life energy and boy oh boy does he nail it. That guy's color is so underrated I think people see these sort of drab images.
1: Americana. Yeah. yeah. It's all about Americana.
0: Yeah. And it has sort of a, a simplicity about it that's not that exciting. Um, but for me, looking at, it at Edward Hopper, both from a distance, because his, his sense of, of visual clarity and tonality is mind-boggling, but his color is insane. Right. Um, and you know, I was looking at this painting of a pope up at uh, the Metropolitan Museum a few years ago, painted by El Greco, and there's this um, sort of alizarin-ish, dirty alizarin uh, fabric, and there are these uh, this slate gray color, maybe shoes, um, and just the level of understanding of color and abstraction it, and the marks too are not, they seem as though he's not in any kind of system that the marks are all meaningfully involved so that everything he paints is the right mark to his being, yeah. to to create what he's after. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so beautiful. That's yeah, what Manet, I mean about humility.
1: Right. You I know? feel like Manet does that really well too. Oh yeah. You know, just the efficiency, or like that. I don't know. It. I'm jealous of that kind yeah. of like brushstroke to create that image. I love too that you're talking about El Greco in the Met. Yeah. Because, I think sometimes when people, let's say, if you work mainly as an in an abstract yeah. method. And, um, you know, like your, your paintings are pretty, not hard edge, but you know, they're, you know, they're pretty tight geometric paintings and, you know, people would just imagine that you spend all day looking at like Blinky Palermo or, you know, or Ellsworth Kelly and that's like it. And, you know, I would get that all the time where people thought my work was like, oh, you must like Alex Katz or Sheeler or Hopper or people like that. But, But I'm looking at all this other
0: stuff. Right. That's so I think informing.
1: it's important for people to know that artists look outside of just the stuff their work looks like. You know?
0: Well, in fact, one of the reasons I was interested in this gallery is because there are no other um, geometric artists. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, <clears throat> I don't think of my artwork as geometric abstraction. Yeah. Um, I think part of the reason that that front room is as is, is varied as it is is because... Um, I consider myself somewhat of a wild animal in disguise Mm -hmm. and that these hard edges have a way of um, uh, seeming like something else. And yeah, I agree completely with you that um, when you see something that strikes you, so it's like the chemistry between people, Mm -hmm. all right? You, You see something and it just makes a lot of sense to you given your own natural ability, your eye, and your history. Like you've tried something like it, and you've come to believe that it's a waste of your time, and then when you see it somebody else's work, then you kind of judge it as not that interesting. Right, right. Um,
1: It takes a certain amount of, um, I don't know, experience or what it is to be able to see that stuff for what it is, and remove it from your own process or your own experience. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I think the worst teachers are the ones that come into the studio and they critique people's work based on their
0: work. Their own work. Yeah. That's a real problem. Um, uh, Yeah. You know, the same thing with music. You you know, like I was, I don't listen to opera particularly. And about 20 years ago, I was driving on this road near our house and listening to NPR. Um, and and at that time it wasn't all talk. Now the local NPR is pretty much all talk. But they had music, and this woman started singing this piece of music. And I had to call the station and find out what it was. It was like blowing my mind, Lee, so exquisitely beautiful. And it turned out that it was this woman from Switzerland. Um, And she was singing at the Herbert von Carrion tribute after he died with the Berlin Berlin Philharmonic. And I make a lot of CDs and give them away. And I put there are two songs on this CD by her. It's it's a Mozart Requiem. And there are two additional songs that I'm not fully understand how they connect with the Requiem. I think they are part of the whole thing. But they're sort of separate, these separate songs. And I must have given that, those songs away 300 times. Yeah. That's not an exaggeration. Right. So the, the, the coolest part of this is that recently, in the last six months, I um, looked her up to see if I could watch her singing. Because mm-hmm. right? now too. you can do yeah, anything yeah. you want, right? <laughs> so sure enough, there she was. And then I thought, oh, wow, maybe I should see if she's on Facebook. Well, she was. So I wrote her this little note, and I explained <laughs> to her, that, that she was a goddess to me right um, changed your life and she yeah, yeah she her music was one of the greatest this it's Mozart a lot of it yeah, I mean yeah. but but her rendition mm-hmm. and I've heard a lot of renditions of this particular la date Dominum, mm-hmm. um, is particularly superb and um, so now we're Facebook friends and we you know well she must have appreciated that I think she did um, and I think you know, Artists being genuinely appreciated, mm-hmm. they they like it. Yeah, typically. Right. You know. Well,
1: and also we're unencumbered by people like coming up to us off the street, like an actor or something yeah. like that. You know, being like, "Oh, you were amazing," and this or right. that. Like we yeah. don't really have to deal with that ever. No,
0: because we're relatively no one, anonymous. Yeah. And the community is small.
1: Right. No yeah. one knows. A lot of times you might know someone's work really well, and you yeah. have no idea what they look like
0: yeah that's funny isn't it yeah it is
1: so you brought up music yeah. and that's you know a big part of my life and mm. my interests and part of what we talk about yeah. a lot whenever i'm talking to people mm. what where did you are you a fan you're a fan of music right i love music yeah. music
0: is important do you paint to music um i used to more i think that i'm um, my brain is getting older maybe too many fumes um and i'm feeling uh, <laughs> too literally much,
1: too much zinc yellow
0: too much fumes, yeah. okay? So actually, zinc yellow is not good stuff. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, you know, people shouldn't worry about owning a painting that has toxic materials in it because it doesn't just it doesn't fly jump. off the paint, <laughs> yeah. painting and in, into their being, Right. you know, like look at Picasso and Rembrandt and whoever, it's all filled with cadmiums and stuff like that, and yeah. chromates, and so um, <clears throat> I have a harder time paying attention These days, Um, when I was younger, I think I have too much on my mind. I mean, like just I think the digital revolution is part of this. I think with with the Trump presidency, we Mm -hmm. are inundated with um, you know I don't think we ever had to think so much about how not so great things are to put it mildly. Right. Um, And uh, so music. Is here and there now for me mm-hmm. as mu- compared to the way it used to be um, But if I hear something that I really like, which is only once in a while, then that'll get my interest for a while
1: Yeah, I can relate to that too because I'm I love listening to music when I work because yeah. it gives me that energy right or I just you yeah. know it fuels me yeah. in the studio, yeah. but every once in a while lately in life I'll enjoy some silence. Yeah. And that was never, because I grew up, my dad played music all the time, uh-huh. Motown. Really? All the time. Uh-huh. And uh, I just got used to music. Yes. You know, and I would sleep, we didn't have air conditioning, right. small house.
0: Yeah.
1: And it would always be a fan in a window, yeah. like one of those box uh-huh. fans blowing to keep it cool. Yeah. So I love white noise. I just uh-huh. love it's uh-huh. soothing to have music on. So I never would, would be around in silence. Do but you he, have a white noise maker? I don't. I have a bathroom exhaust
0: fan that uh-huh. I put on all the time. <laughs> you know, you can buy for about twenty, thirty bucks, mm-hmm. a little plastic unit. Oh yeah, and it'll make that, that. It has different settings, right? And one of which is white noise. Okay, and it sounds like <laughs> like very consistent. Yeah. And we've been using one of those for a long time. And once, you know, you lie there for a few minutes while you're going to bed, and you don't hear it almost instantly.
1: Yeah, it just. So well, here's the rub. Yeah. My wife doesn't like it. Oh. <laughs> oh. So How's How does she feel about the
0: bathroom fan? Well, that
1: I can sneak that on because it's a it's an appliance. Oh. You know what I mean? Like it's oh, yeah. like a little less intrusive than oh. if I have a little pod next to my bed mm. and I'm like, honey, I'm gonna turn on the you know the ocean waves or something. But,
0: but she, uh, yeah.
1: You, you know, it's I think we've we've come to the middle. Right. I'll occasionally it's sleep working. in silence, it's working yeah.
0: well enough. Yeah. Do you have a lot of extraneous noise where you live no it's no. not bad oh. because we're
1: in the back side of a building mm. and and uh i live in a part of east williamsburg that's not too heavily traveled so yeah. it's it's pretty quiet yeah. I have to say mm. you know compared to past apartments in williamsburg that I,
0: now yeah, do you typically listen to music or do you listen to books at all or anything like that or talk radio i can't that's
1: mm. the thing mm. because if i'm if I'm listening to like audiobooks or yeah. something, my, I get distracted. Right. I can't focus on what I'm doing. I start mm-hmm. thinking too much about what I'm listening to. Yeah. Whereas music, it can just kind of flow through you.
0: you right. Know? Well, it seems, looking at your work, that you're making a lot of decisions from one area to the next. Yeah. With my work, um, it's not like that it, to the same degree. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'll paint with, like for example, these paintings – I painted this blue color first, actually. um, And then I painted the red afterward, and I decided that the blue was wrong and repainted the smaller ones. Um, There were three of them, but there's only two in the show. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the decision-making process is much more slowed down, whereas there's a lot of parts in your painting. So you could probably, I'm guessing, like make one of the parts within a fairly short amount of time and then you're on to the next decision, so you have to like feel what you're feeling. Whereas I have a lot of time where I'm just performing a task. It's funny because um, I'm a little insecure about how people might think about that, but I consider myself very much an intuitive painter, even though that the decisions are slowed down. They still, you know, I repaint areas um, and to arrive at the color, it's very much an intuitive process. Um, yeah, they're just subtle.
1: They're a little more subtle, and and like you said, like a slower decision, but they're Slow. still they're still decisions. The Everyone's time. making yeah. work, like they're physically, well, unless right. they're outsourcing, but you know what I yeah. mean. Everyone's sort of making, constructing something, or building a painting, or a sculpture, or whatever, and, in, and you know, whether you're making you know, improvisational moves in t- throughout the whole process continually or not, you're yeah. still making something. Right. I think sometimes people can be a little judgy about that, or mm-hmm. it's like you know, someone who's, or you know, especially nowadays, I think it's a, a kind of like a backlash from from the internet or from movies or you know yeah. the constant stimulus. People like to see a painter, particularly a painter who's like making like improvising. Oh, sure. Or it's not pho- photography based and it's mm-hmm. a little more loose. Right. And, and that there's kind of something refreshing about seeing those decisions where oh, yeah. everything isn't nailed down.
0: Oh, totally. Whereas I think
1: someone could see a painting that's a little more tight and think, oh, this is kind of techie.
0: Yeah. Which well, it's
1: not. And you don't, don't even use tape, do you? No,
0: I don't. But um, what I do is I um, I stretch this, this um, art fix linen, which is really nice stuff. Um, one of the guys that made stretchers for me, I asked him, what's the best linen to stretch nice and tightly, and he told me this stuff, and he was right. I still, it, it requires knowledge about how to stretch it, because linen is difficult to stretch. It, it it acts differently in different directions. You probably know that. So the thing is that um, uh, then I draw with a ruler and a pencil um, the image that I'm going to paint. So I do use a ruler in order to make the line, and I make the line very, very light, so it doesn't, like, have a pencil line reflectivity in yeah. the painting, and um, then I paint by hand. And I have this board um, that moves in front of my art. So like it's it's like a plank that's wide that has a cleat at the top and a shoe at the bottom, and I can just move it back and forth, and it enables me to steady my hand. Yeah. It's funny because um, yeah, I mean. This whole thing too about gesture and expressive, like expressive marks, mm-hmm. um, and seeing the decisions and so on. Um, I'm actually like most interested in the final image, all right. And so um, expressivity on its own does not a great image make, okay. And you know, like you look at, like go back to Hopper for a second, and he has got his hand in the air, and he's putting those marks on most of the time. It seems without like a mall stick, there's a, there's a little bit of a wobble in his mark making, and so on, um, but the end result, the image is so rock solid and alive to me, um, and many other artists who I could you know talk about, but um, so I don't really care how something's made, if it like kills me the end result. So like I've mentioned Myron Stout, And um, a friend of mine is a a pretty important collector. Um, He used to live up in Connecticut near where we live. And I would visit him pretty regularly. I'd frame stuff for him. And he would buy things for me once in a while. But he he buys major stuff. And he has a bunch of Myron Stout work. And in seeing the pencil drawings in person in his house, I it gave me permission to do something I had done a long time ago, but that someone else told me is, it's a waste of creative energy. And uh, so to make these drawings carefully and shade them carefully. Um, but I'm not really thinking about his work so much. It was just the shading, you know? Um, like my shapes don't really look like Myron shapes. There's something clunky and similar in a way, but... Um, uh, But he had the ability to create something, an image where, you know, um, it would stop me. And that to me is what's interesting in any form. Like I love Franz West, for example, right? Um, I like Joanne Greenbaum's work. Um, I like the insanity of her work. And it's funny because I often, when I look at her work, I, um, uh, I question the paintings a lot. I, like, argue with them. But I still love her work because I love what she's doing. I like the originality of it and the feeling that she's defined this place. Um, Mike, Michael Berryhill is another one like that, where he creates this um, very odd um, energy that is unique to him. Um, and that's exciting. Yeah. So,
1: like. Even if it's not your most, I'm not saying in his case, but even if it's not an image that you gravitate towards yeah. or feel super compelled by, but you're really interested in the process and what they're thinking about and how they got to that point.
0: You know? Well, I, I, well with Joanne Greenbaum, um, the images uh, um, are, are arguable, but I love them. It's weird. This is a very weird relationship I have with her work um, because I think she's one of the most interesting abstract painters, um, and yet I argue with virtually every painting she makes, yeah. and so that's weird to me. Um, Michael Berryhill is, is similar in a way I mean like his paintings uh, are um, I just think that the territory that they've created feels so right for what it is and it's so unique and um, that's a very hard thing to do in fact that is my prescription to any young artist it's like make something unique that feels really right for what it is yeah good luck Yeah. You know? easier said than, <laughs> <laughs> easier said than you know? done
1: the burden of it's funny too because i was just talking to someone about this yesterday how there's so much stimulus and information and stuff like how as a young Mm. person do you even decide yeah
0: (laughs) well i think about that in relation to music you know like as electronica became part of the equation and um you know, you look back to the early, more analog approach to making music, and the decisions were much less in number. Right. And I think that it freed the artists to feel things in a way. Yeah. Um, but that's a generalization. And I think there are some people who are working with electronica. I like, I, I like the band Radiohead a lot. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> um, again, you could say the image is what's king, and with the song, it's the like the song, right? Can they create something that feels like first of all that you like the personality, like they're a, a person who you would enjoy spending time with the personality of the music, like that's really important to me too. Is to, to think a little bit about, you know, how does this live with somebody like even someone like Bob Dylan, where his music is so scruffy and, and dirty, gritty, all right. Um, not just his his voice, um, and yet it's so kind on the inside. It's yeah. like you could like handle it for yeah. a long time. Yeah, you know,
1: it's, it's totally different. It's funny too. I think we're getting maybe maybe here's a parallel too yeah. between music and art. I think we're getting to the point of where you know you have postmodernism, pluralism, and there's all this stuff going on at the same time: figuration, abstraction, all that stuff. And then I think at the beginning of that in a way there was a lot of people pitting certain styles or certain work ways of working against each other or had agendas it feels as though these days and maybe younger generations it it you know it's happening with them where there's not that hierarchy or that kind of like i'm in this camp you're in that camp vibe right. going on and it feels like with music that kind of happened with technology where at the beginning it was like i remember going to see you know electronic musicians in the beginning yeah. where they just had a laptop and people the the constant thing was like they're not really playing music. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't a real show or something. Yeah. But now, no one cares about right. that. Like, it's just about the songs, right. about the Is music. Is it working? Yeah. Do I, am I feeling something Yeah, here?
0: feeling something, totally.
1: Yeah, and then there's the showmanship of it, yes. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's about the music. So right. we've gotten to a place, like you're saying, with people like Radiohead or Bjork right. or, or people who integrate yeah. electronic into it, but it's not just... About you know the way it's made, right? And then it becomes part of like a, oh, a broader yeah.
0: dialogue. Oh, it's 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 about the end result. How creative is it? How much do you feel it? it took me a while to get into Radiohead. Um, uh, they were tough because um, I I'm not really that experimental in what I listen to. I listen to a lot of older stuff. Warm kind of has a warm intelligence. Um, and I had a student who was loved them. And I asked her, can I borrow your CDs? And I cherry picked some songs and made a CD for myself. And then slowly I started to. It grew on you? Yes. Yeah. But I think you're right. Like what you say about <clears throat> um, the variety of options now. I mean, if you have um, a computer, you can travel the globe in minutes. Like. Experiencing all different yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. You know, buying something, looking at artists, listening to music, reading some political stuff, whatever. I mean, you can just go, 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 go. So, like, it makes sense that there would be a hodgepodge, although there still seems to be these kind of things that occur where a lot of people make work kind of similarly. Yeah, yeah. And that's happening. So I think that's happening now yeah. in a variety of different ways. Um, and also, I think that, Way of thinking about life is part of what gave me permission. It's a small part, but it is part to do the front room in this show, mm-hmm. so varied. Um, and then to contrast it with, like, because I think that trying to say something about that variety by making this room clear that that room is about variety right you know
1: it definitely works yeah because you come back here and you get hit with you're the, surprised with the unity right you know and then you go back the nice part about a back room yeah is that you go back out yeah you have to exit through the gift shop that's right
0: yeah <laughs> you can't go
1: out the back door so you yeah. have to go experience that again yes I got that a lot um, that sensation and excitement yes. when I first started doing uh, animations, because ah. people would see the paintings and then they would go watch the animation, yeah. which is time-based or sound. Yeah. There's a whole different relationship. But imagine. but it's the images yeah. of what's going on in the right. paintings. Then they have to go back out. And right. then my what I got excited about was that people generally experience the paintings a little bit differently after like seeing that. the movement. You know.
0: Well, I was watching one didn't watch the whole thing, but there was this silhouette. You seem to use dark silhouette a fair amount in your work. And there's like looking up at some kind of architectural construction that people were walking across, like a bridge over a street type of a thing. Yeah. They're walking slowly across the top of that. It's just, and um, uh, there's music going your music from what i gather is has an ambient quality a lot of it is that correct
1: yeah i, I collaborate with different people on okay. the soundtracks and i generally am and yeah. asking people for a certain vibe yeah. or you know yeah. that goes with what i'm doing so yeah generally it's it's pretty ambient
0: yeah um, and then there are paintings that are related to that too but like it's interesting like one of the things that i felt in looking at your work more closely is um, is a, is a loneliness yeah. actually you know um, <clears throat> loneliness is beautiful like in fact one of the things I like about music some music and I used to listen to this a lot more was music that would make you cry mm-hmm. alright yeah. because it would like tug at you your emotional um, side in some kind of painful way mm-hmm. um, and you know I mean if we think about the world where it Is going, like just think about global warming and all these hurricanes recently. Now, I can't say for sure that those are obviously, I can't say that that's as a result of global warming, but it sure does seem like we are um, dirtying the atmosphere to such a degree and it's continuing. It's like we know it, but we just keep dumping it. Um, And, um, you know, the, the financial instability worldwide, you know, you look at the way America's roads are. Disintegrating, and like the, the lack of, uh, you know, the post-industrial state where the number of good jobs is seemingly declining, um, and um, it's sad.
1: Yeah, you know? I it's mean a downer. We, we've got
0: Trump. We've got Trump. You know, like I mean, this is uh, upsetting. It's a downer. It is a freaking is downer. A downer.
1: <laughs> That's what I'm right now in my last show that I just had in Japan and. The show I have coming up in in the spring here is is about that it's about like the last five minutes of what you were talking you yeah. know what I mean it's all about that yeah and kind of um, you know just a visual
0: very sensitively you know well, because but. it's not it
1: none of it is and that's always been a tenet of what I'm interested in is none of it is a black and white yeah. thing it's it's right. there's like a good and bad there's a it's nuanced and and I don't want to make this sort of punk statement I, I sort of want to propose questions like hey this is this is our world and this is kind of what it says about us you can decide
0: well that sensitivity that feeds you it like, gives you something that you feel in your body and it's a positive feeling mm-hmm. and then um, I believe in that giving some warmth um, although that's an interesting thing in terms of warmth ver- like intellectual versus emotional mm-hmm. and um, I I don't know. This is a great ridiculous gen- generalization, but I tend to like work that's in the middle, slightly towards the intellectual, because I feel like it will last longer mm-hmm. in my interest oh, of yeah, it. Oh yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, because
1: it's not as specific to. Yeah, it's a little more reserved, but it's still there, right? Yeah,
0: you still got the pilot light of humanity. There's yeah. there's warmth, um. But. There's a freshness that makes it seem like, like um, back to uh, Jasper John's using the lighter color. In a way, he took the notion of this red and he slightly intellectualized it, at least from my perspective, and it reads from across the room. Now, I don't think he was using his brain necessarily to, he knew this. Um, and he might, if I said that to him, he might say, you know, I've never thought about that but um but I see what you mean, yeah, it's a I possibility think,
1: yeah, I and the the idea of emotion too, in artwork, mm-hmm.
0: you know there's always
1: this this feeling that you know if something is more physical, it's more emotional, and I don't really buy into that, and you know i I think emotion the, the removal, or like you're saying the guy in the corner yeah. who seemed kind of detached, right. that to me is as. If, intensity, if not more intriguing than someone who's jumping around the room throwing paint right. around.
0: Now, sometimes people can jump around, make a lot of noise, and you can feel a lot and really, like, it's working for you. Yeah. And then um, sometimes you don't feel it, and then five years later you go, wait a minute, I now get that. Yeah. Um, that's always interesting, too, how yeah. that changes. Um
1: It's an interesting dynamic, yeah. You know? And then there's the people who are you feel that it's illustrating right. an emotion, yeah. which is a total different kind of feel. And, and there's something to be said for that too, I guess, you know. Well, and cold removal is really interesting because something is making that person not give anything. Yeah. You know. Do you know the comic Chris Ware? Um, Chris Ware. He's nope. a Chicago comic, and I think he does it really well to where there's a real beauty and a design element and a simplicity Uh of his images. Yes. But it's really depressing and removed and kind of, like, emotional. Yeah. And it's this really good tension between Hmm. the two things that I think uh, not a lot of people navigate... Well, uh, not as many people navigate those waters, I think. Yeah. What do you want your, your viewers to... Like, when people are coming to your show, you know, what well, do you want them to, to, to feel or connect with? If I'm with? being
0: completely honest, I, I actually feel that um, the fact that I make hard-edge paintings that I'll be misunderstood. Right. Typically, I feel like people will glance in the gallery and then just, if they come in, they'll take a quick look and leave.
1: Design? Or like, oh, it's mod. Hard-edge. It nice. It's cold. It's yeah.
0: mechanical. Um, you know, where's the flesh? And I don't mean like I mean, like where you feel the warmth of flesh against you right. versus like plastic, right. let's say. Um, but what I would like is for people to decide that they think this is very successful, very human, um, that it's that I'm in control of it to a large degree. I like judge often artwork whether when I look at a group of artwork by somebody, whether I feel like they are in control of what they're doing, um, where they they know what they're doing. I don't love that word control, but like they they seem aware of what it is that they're doing. And um, I would like actually, if if I'm thinking about that question um, for people to leave and not be able to forget the work. All right. So like that's something that I strongly believe in and said, two students a lot was try to make something that will stick to people that they can't forget
1: keep them in the painting yeah so they carry like... it
0: around with them um, and good luck that's really tough to do because we're also critical you know we see something that looks like somebody else and we give the other person the credit and discount what we're looking at often you know um,
1: <clears throat> and there's a lot out there yeah there's a lot of visual noise. So to keep something, for someone to keep thinking yeah. about what you're making isn't easy either. No, you know, There's only so much, I feel it, there's only so much brain space in there. Well, I'm you running know what, out of room.
0: <laughs> what I actually believe about finding that stuff mm. is that, um, I don't know if Agnes Martin meant this when she said, wait for inspiration. She says it's not about ideas. If she's talking about a similar thing, I'm, I'm not thought about that. Until this moment, because of this conversation, but like I think that stuff comes to you like a dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dreams come to you, you don't control them, they come to you, all right? Like, and that you experience them, and you're like, where'd that come from? And you, you'll never know for sure, but you might have ideas. And I think that what I do is I wait for something to come to me that is, I can feel it. And when I can feel it, I start experimenting with it and see how it goes. Um, And I've done that for years and years and years. So it's all guided by, like, an internal feeling that happens when it happens, and I can't control it.
1: Do you ever get a block where you just can't work for a while? Um, Or do you just work through it?
0: I just work, you know, like, if I... because there's this
1: idea that with inspiration you know that kind of like cliche like I can't make anything right? or you'll have you know you'll talk to someone who's like I'm I'm stuck I can't make anything I'm waiting for inspiration and then there's the blue collar people of the world who are like that's BS you just work through it you work to find
0: well you know I was listening to an interview maybe on Terry Gross with Bruce Springsteen recently and He's not a musician I personally listen to that much, but I have a lot of respect for him.
1: Same, I feel the same way. You know?
0: yeah. So, I mean, I really think the guy's great. Um, but he said something interesting about how his son went. It was his last year in high school, and Bruce decided to take a year plus off of his career and stay at home. And he said it got, he got depressed, all right? And he said, you know, the truth is, I'm kind of lost without my work, all right? And it's a complicated thing because there's also opportunity, you know, where when you have opportunity, it gives you energy. Um, I mean, that's one of the unfortunate things about a lot of younger artists who are very talented, Mm -hmm. who either they don't know how to go and make opportunity for themselves um, or it just doesn't present itself, and that they, they get tired of not having op- any opportunity. And if they were given just one thing, like make a show in a local gallery with four paintings, you've got like six months to make them or whatever, um, all of a sudden the energy is flowing through them. It's like opening a window with the fan on the other side of the house. And so um, for me, um, I keep working. There's another part, too, to this, which is about 20 years ago, um, I developed this pain in one of my feet, um, and it was pretty bad, and I went to the foot doctor, and he gave me some shots in a certain place, and it just kept getting worse and worse, and my hips started to bother me. He gave me these these hard orthotics out of a box, and they made my foot feel better instantly, but my hips started to hurt, and then my foot started to hurt more, so everything I did seemed to, like, make it worse. Um, and I'm still dealing with this 20 years later. And basically, the part of the reason I work constantly um, and part of the reason I don't come to New York that much is because I have pain in this one particular foot to the degree that it's so uncomfortable. Um, so when I work, I sit, and it makes me feel like I'm using my life um, in a productive manner that, is satisfying relatively. Uh, And that's a shame, you know, because if if my foot didn't hurt, I think I wouldn't work as much, and I would travel more and do more stuff, go to artist studios and stuff. Um, So Did they
1: ever diagnose what it was? Well,
0: yeah. I mean, I had a couple of operations, and there's a junk term called plantar fasciitis. It's typically when you get out of bed in the morning and your heel hurts, There are micro tears where the tissue inside your foot has pulled away. Um, But there's a lot of different kinds of plantar fasciitis, I believe. And then um, the shots this guy was giving me were for a neuroma, which is a nerve problem in the front of your foot. So I was having pain in the back and the heel, and then I all all of a sudden developed this pain in the front. But I think that was from the hard orthotics pulling on the tissue so intensely. It wasn't an aroma, it was just this like too much stretching of yeah. my, the inside of my very tight foot. And I'm working with a guy right now who's a young guy, um, and he's trying to help me, and I am better than I was. I mean, that's good. you know so yeah. that's yeah. But I don't mean to like belabor my health issue, but like it figures into the way I work. Yeah, it's part
1: of the pro. You know, it's it's like if you have really bad vision. Yeah. Or you know. Like, I have astigmatism, and I so often forget my glasses, Ah. and it really affects the way I work. And I had it for years before I even had it diagnosed, and my Ah. paintings always looked a little hazy, you know? And people would always say, oh, your paintings are so tight, and I was like, what are you talking about? Like, they're not that Ah. tight, and it was because I had astigmatism. They Ah. didn't feel quite so hard-edged or... You know. So you
0: discovered this at a certain age and you got glasses and then I, everything I got did. much clearer. It's it like, was
1: like all of a sudden there were leaves on trees. Uh-huh. But then huh. I, after a little bit of that, I, f- I don't like it. Yeah. Like I kind of like life without the edge.
0: Uh, that's interesting. <laughs> well, that's back to the discussion of hard edge um, and the feeling of what it's like to be somebody who makes hard edge stuff. Right. <laughs> Which there should be a sympathy group yeah. because... <laughs> a bad rap those right. guys <laughs> yeah they really do you know
1: yeah it's always yeah it's it's you're part of a, a dubious club or something right. like oh yeah you make hard edge work yeah or whenever you hear it describes that for some reason yeah. there's a little shame or something in it yeah but it's like you're you're doing you're cutting corners or you're doing something
0: you doing know? something that isn't really that interesting It's great it's
1: probably just like people who use the computer in music you know, we're like, oh, right. you're that. Yeah. You're doing oh, you're this. you're cheater. Yeah,
0: you're, like you're cutting doing it corners on the computer. It's not real. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and that's what. So here's my.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't know if you want it, but I'm gonna give it. Yeah. My yeah. interpretation yeah. of the work yes. from when I first saw yeah. it
0: was. When was that? Oh, I don't. know. A while ago.
1: A while ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, there's the duality that I got. Mm. I think the first time I saw it, which was in the beginning, it it reminded me a little bit of like. Mm. Not techno, but like electronic music, yeah. in the sense that there was a structure, and there was a sort of um, it, it felt like there was a pattern in it mm-hmm. that was happening. Yes, but um, the color was the sort of jazz. It yeah. was like the 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 energy and the burst, you right. know. So it had this really nice dynamic yeah. of a sort of underlying rhythm and kind of um, method, like a, a, a deliberate method. But then the color was the You know, the singer going off, or like, you know, the improv of it all. So I kind of like that balance between the
0: two. Well, when I looked last night, I wrote down some stuff about my past exhibition stuff and like who Mm -hmm. I work with and all that. And I realized that from show to show, I changed drastically, you know. And it would be almost what you're describing as though I wanted to turn everything upside down from one thing to the next and then I thought to myself well look at the show you've got right now without having thought about it in relation to my past changes with my work this show gives you two sides of of the same coin I think Um, and I think that how like back to that issue of how do you get people to like look at what you're doing and I think that um, opposites Um, that tension that you're talking about is one really good way I mean like the color and also color is interesting about color I think color is possibly the strongest most powerful arrow in the quiver of the artist but what I'm getting at here is that like the ability to emotionally move you what is the thing in art that comes closest to doing that and um well, of course, I'm an abstract artist, and it's not really about like social content that I'm talking about here. But like, like even with your work, you know, with all these images that are going on, what I notice is that the sensitive part is the color that you use. Very um, feel the color. You feel the color. I can see that. I can feel it. And um, so, um, I think it's an interesting notion. Just serve up those feelings of color in the most basic manner um, particularly with this stuff that is um, devoid of any poise yeah. but then right next to the painting that has no poise there's a painting that the shape let's say is um, sensitively constructed just as a form, just as a line Like because again you're like you are, you're turned over um, you're, you're denied what you thought so it's a, it has a magnetic attraction. And, you know, mag, magnets have poles. Yeah. Um, so... <clears throat> the old
1: push-pull. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's stuck around for a long time for a reason, right?
0: Well, they, they work. Right, well, you know? you know, you take back to what's the ultimate creation of life, you know? Yeah. Something that, that will... Make you very tired for yeah. about a year. Yeah, Or Do you longer. Do you have kids? Or longer. One. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: He's, he... Or, or yeah. longer. <laughs> and does long-term damage to your uh, memory. Yeah. I, think, I feel like yeah. sleep deprivation.
0: Oh, boy. Yeah, that does mess up your memory, it doesn't does. it? It does.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it all changes. I used How to... old is your one he's, child? He's 10. 10. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. Well, our experience, or at least mine, with our two daughters was until about age 11, they were curious about, you know. um, One time, we took our daughters to the beach, and the younger one, we were out body surfing. All right, she was so excited. She used to get so unbelievably excited, and she said, I said, this is what you wanna do. This is the way to do it, whatever, I think. I don't even remember what prompted her to say this, but she says, Daddy, you know everything. <laughs> she was like about I don't know, right. eight years old or something, and um, but then things change, and you know I think probably it's that they are defining themselves and pulling away, and it's a necessary thing. But um, and then at least with our kids, they come back. You know, there's a period there where, at least with us, um, where. They didn't really want to be around us. And, yeah,
1: you know. I think that happens with all kids. It's yeah. just part of you know. Yeah. Like becoming your own development. Person. Yeah, yeah. And just individuality right. and, you, and hormones. You can't control it. You just want to like break away or something. And make, you know, I'm ready for it. I mean, yeah. it's it's already coming in, in right. bits. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm at ease with it. I mean, it doesn't feel great, but you know, you know, at, at a certain point, you're just not going to be cool anymore. <laughs> and then hopefully, down the line, they appreciate you for in all your idiosyncrasies and quirks. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you know, when our older daughter went off to college, the first one to go away, all right, and she had gone to camp a couple times, a few times, um, and we were so ready for her to go, okay, but we cried like crazy when we dropped her off in the car. We couldn't really talk for like a half hour. Right. Um, <laughs> That's nice when that happens. I mean, I remember coming out of movies where you're so moved that you can't talk to the person you're with. Mm -hmm. Because you don't want to be a blabbering, like, crybaby. You have to just,
1: like, let it soak in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's parenthood. (laughs) So so how long is this show up for?
0: This is up until November 18th.
1: November 18th. um, Okay. And... And how else can people experience who can't make it to the show, how can they experience your well, work?
0: Well, if they go to fredericksonfrieser.com, mm-hmm. F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K-S, and mm-hmm. Frisers F-R-E-I-S-E-R, um, then they can see the show. and
1: Information about you. It's
0: not bad to see these paintings. People say to me, oh boy, it's so different. But the, the, the installation shots of the show tell the story pretty yeah, well. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's always different being in there in person, but yeah. you can still experience it right. without yeah. being there in person. So, yeah, and then they
0: can listen to this, which is cool. Exactly, um, yeah, it's I like, like a, that.
1: That's, I'm, I'm glad. It's, a, it's like an extension, a yeah. different kind of extension, hopefully. of.
0: Well, it's like what you were saying about people thinking that you would be attracted to art like what you make. Yeah. And I think it's very three dimensionalizing when people can hear how you think about stuff. Um, And a healthy thing. Yeah. Um, So.
1: And not just, you know, I used a little bit of red here and a little bit of blue here, but, you know,
0: a deeper. just descriptive. Right. But, like, what do you really believe?
1: Right. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's bad now because I can't meet anyone without starting in, like, okay, well, I need the backstory here. Like, I need to know, like, where did you grow up? Like, what what informed your life? Like, how did you get to this? You know? And uh, that can be a little intrusive if you're not doing a podcast.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, people like it when you ask them about them. Well, yeah, you know? sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I think the show looks great. Thank you. And, uh, you know, thanks for coming down and oh, meeting me. It's been a pleasure, was a pleasure to talk. I enjoyed thanks.
0: it. It was very fluid. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thanks, man. All right, thank you.
1: Sound and Vision is produced, recorded, and facilitated by myself, Brian Alfred. The introduction was recorded by Michael Lovett of the band Miskamines. You can also catch him performing in his band Metronomy. The intro-outro music is by Sean Seymour from the band Lola Tone. Please subscribe, rate, and review Sound and Vision on iTunes. You can find studio snapshots and additional information at soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can find more information about my own paintings and animations at paintchanger.com. Thanks for listening and supporting Mm -hmm. this podcast. Thanks to all the artists who share their Mm stories
0: with me.